We're going to get back to Balaam's story. And uh, today on Palm Sunday, we're not going to the story of Palm Sunday, but we're, I think it kind of ties in. So I have two thoughts that's, that kind of start me off on what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let's make a deal is what I call this. If you have little kids in your life, you know something about the art of negotiation. Because little kids have a, just a boundless capacity to negotiate, right? Don't they? Whether you're a teacher or a parent or an aunt or an uncle, or there's, they negotiate about everything all the time. You go back and forth. It could be about what's for lunch. It probably has something to do with sleep schedule, right? It, perhaps it's like a purchase of a much desired toy or in the checkout line, a candy that's much desired. The words, do I have to? And can I please, these are the earmarks of this discussion that happen for parents and teachers and everyone else around little kids all the time. And the thing about it is, for the most part, the adults in the situation are actually trying to do what is best for the little one. But the little one believes that the key to their happiness is winning the negotiation. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? This is, this is life with little kids. So that's one thought, just the reality of negotiation in life. The, the, the certainty that the one who has the, the opportunity to make the decision for me probably is going to blow it unless I push them to make the right decision. The other thought is this. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday highlights Jesus as king. The Jews knew that a king was coming. They were hoping and waiting for this king to come and enter into their existence. And on Palm Sunday, the story that we read in Scripture, it seemed that everyone, or at least everyone around, had finally embraced Jesus as that king. Of course, we know that that moment, that week, turned out differently than that moment suggested. But in that spot, in that time, in that place, it felt like God's people were ready to move right into the kingdom. Here is the king. So I put these two thoughts together for today as we look at this story in Baal. Because we often talk about Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. We think about this idea that he has been given the name above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when we hear those things and we reflect on these things and we, we read about the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem and then hailing him as king, it moves us, it fills us, it gets us emotional even sometimes. Jesus is king and they see it. But as inspiring and deeply moving as those things are about Palm Sunday, somehow it gets disconnected from our lives. What I mean by that is simply this. Is Jesus our king? Truly. In our lives, does he function as king? Is he in charge of your life? Does he have the right to say what you do? what you value, what you're here for. Is he functionally your king? Not just like a, a, a button that you put up on your bulletin board like, yeah, Jesus is king, that's cool. Now I'm going to go do what I want to do. Is Jesus your king? Is he your Lord? Are you ready to live out his commands, his instructions? Do we give ourselves to submission to our Lord? 
Every day are we surrendered. We say he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Is he in charge? Does he have the right to tell us what to do? And so as we read this story today, I'm praying that we would see ourselves in here. Not because we've offered sacrifices on mountains and tried to curse God's people. Most of us aren't consciously rejecting God or trying to destroy his people. But what I want us to see is how easily we cover our self-centeredness with spiritual looking stuff. How often our prayer life rises and falls with what I think I need to convince God to do. With the way that my faith is shaken when God doesn't do what I think he should. And I'm not talking about just, you know, I asked God to make it so that I could get to work on time and there was traffic and how could you, God? Like, not just trivial stuff, big stuff. There's someone in my life that has an illness that, that could, be, could take their life and I ask God to rescue them and he doesn't. Like, what do I do with that? How does my faith respond to that? In essence, mankind has always thought that we make deals with the gods. And that has extended to the true and living God. It has been a cause of much confusion and a lot of Christians doing this thing we call deconstruction. Because this God who never fails us seems to fail us. And we don't know what to do with that. We, we sing songs and then we go, well, that doesn't seem true. The God of love seems to do something we think is unloving and we don't know what to do with that. He goes back on his deal with good people. I mean, why do good people suffer? And why do bad people succeed? Why didn't God stop that bad person from doing that bad thing? And these things shake us. Even in Scripture, we see these kind of questions show up as psalmists write and and people cry out to God, what are you doing? Some of the, the prophets, God, what are you doing? How can this be? So we're not going to answer all of those questions today. We're not even going to dig into them, but we're going to look at something that's at the root of those questions, and it's the idea that people make deals with God so that he will do what we think he should or do what we want him to do. And that is exactly what our story in Balaam is about. That is exactly what's happening here. Last time we saw that Balaam was confronted by his donkey about his determination to go and do something God told him he shouldn't do. Now we're going to pick up the story as Balaam finally gets to Balak. So verse 36 of Numbers chapter 22, it says this. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I have come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Balaam said, build me seven altars here. And prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. God met with him. 
Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars. On an each off altar, I have offered a bull and a ram. All right, so as we read this story here, again, it's a little bit confusing to us because it feels like Balaam is saying and doing the right things all along the way. He says to, to Balak, I can't say anything but what God tells me to say. But what we find at the beginning of the story is Balaam coming and Balak can't even wait at his palace. It's, he goes out to meet him at the edge of his border. He is eager for Balaam to come. Normally, that is a sign of real respect. It's a, a sign of honoring someone in high position. You have come to our, our country, you have come to our nation, and we think it's a great honor, so we come out to meet you. But when Balaam arrives, Balak is not honoring him. He's complaining, right? He's saying, what, what is wrong with you? Why didn't you come? You get a view of this eagerness, this desperate nature of Balak. I need you to come and curse God's people. Everything is riding on you, taking this powerful God and cursing my enemies. And so he's confused. He's confused because he's a king and a king who believes in his own power. When we interact with the God of the universe, but we interact believing in our own power, we often are confused. When you believe that control is a key to the peacefulness of your life, you will be confused and discouraged in life. There is an insult when others don't agree that you are powerful. Balak is like, Balaam, why didn't you come? Don't you know how powerful I am? He's insulted because Balaam put like this delay on this thing when Balak said, but I'm a king and I told you to come. When you remove an almighty God, when you remove the power of almighty God from the, from the narrative, then your conversation gets real shallow. It's as simple for Balak as, I told you to come and you didn't come. Why didn't you show up when I, didn't you think I could pay you? I was going to, I told you I would pay you a lot of money. Why didn't you come? And this is the moment where Balaam has a chance to say to Balak, yeah, I didn't come because God's not going to curse these people. And I thought it was useless. Is that what he says? I know he says something that sounds spiritual, but does he say, I'm not going to curse them because God said he can't curse them. It gives us a sense of what's happening here. Balaam doesn't say, well, God said that's never going to happen. Instead, what he does is they go through this exercise of twice offering sacrifices. First, Balak does it, and then Balaam follows up the next day. So Balaam arrives, and on on his arrival, Balaam says to Balak, I can't say whatever I want. I have to say whatever God says. God's in charge. And so to that message, Balak's response, notice his response. Balak's response is unsolicited to start offering multiple sacrifices. Why? Did you ever ask that question? Why is Balak, this godless man, so interested in like doing all this sacrifice? And then the next day, Balaam does the same thing. Balak responds to this idea that God is in charge with, I'm going to be in charge. This is not worship. This is deal making. He wants God to see that he has done the, his side of the deal, his side of the bargain. It's acting like God needs you to pay a toll and then he has to do what you want. Now, Christians, I'm asking us to look at this in our soul because this is a human tendency in all of us. And just because you're a believer, this human tendency doesn't go away. This idea that when I go to God, I've got to make a deal with him. 
I've got to do things that he wants me to do, and then God will do things that I want him to do. Does it matter if I come to God to make a deal or if I come to God in worship? Does it make a difference if I come with a heart that is surrendered and thankful or if I come with a heart that wants to get God to do whatever I think is good? What do you think? Does it make a difference? You guys don't know? Does it make a difference? It is really clear in Scripture. There are many conversations on this topic throughout Scripture. I'm just going to mention two of them that maybe will come to mind. One of them is when Samuel says to Saul, does God delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings? He follows it up with, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, many people, humanly speaking, and even Christians, when we're not being thoughtful about it, think that offering sacrifices, acts of worship, are the same as true worship. It doesn't matter what's behind it. But when Samuel comes to Saul, he says it matters what's behind it. You can't cover up your self-determination. You can't cover up your self-will. You can't cover up your confidence in your own understanding by things that look spiritual. Because to obey is better than sacrifice. I want to go to one other book. And, and Isaiah is a, an incredible book on this topic. And in chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah comes in pretty hot. So I'm going to read this, this passage to you of God to his people in the book of Isaiah on this topic. And notice what it says in verse 11. It says this, of Isaiah chapter 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? You see the differentiation there? He says to them, who asked this of you? And you're like, you did, God. And he says, I'm not talking about the offerings. I'm talking about this trampling of my courts. What's he pointing at? They're sacrifice. They're doing all kinds of sacrifices, but he doesn't want them. Keep going. Verse 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They are become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why not? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the cause of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. What's God saying there to them? These sacrifices that you're bringing me day in and day out, over and over and over again, they don't reflect your heart. So get them out of here. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to have an uber sincerity in every moment. We're human beings. We go up and down. But is the trajectory of my life, when I serve the Lord, when I do what is right, is it because I think it will get God to do what I want Him to do? Or is it because God is God? And he has rescued me and saved me. 
What God says to his people in Isaiah, I think still applies to us as a church today. It is a message for us about coming to God sincerely. It matters what our sacrifices mean. It matters what our worship means to us. I'm not talking about feelings. Man, I don't feel it today. I don't care. I mean, I do care, but I don't care. It doesn't matter if you don't feel it. It matters if you believe it. It matters if you know it. Sometimes the fight back to the feeling goes through the path of worship. It's the way that I connect what I know in my soul with what I feel in my life. It's a way back to freedom. And so in this story, here's what it means. Balaam and Balak can offer all the animals they want to do. It's not going to do anything. But they are convinced it is the way to get God to do what they want. Balak is not used to not getting his way. He expects that his money talks. He expects that he can buy enough animals and build enough altars and God is going to be forced to curse Israel. And this is a traditional human understanding of religion. There's actually a Babylonian text from about this time that describes this kind of ceremony for a worshiper. It's a prescription of going to a God and getting the God to do what you want them to do. And it talks about when the worshiper offers these specific seven sacrifices, then the God is obligated to respond to the worshiper with whatever they wanted. The deal has been made. So you go, it gives you do this, and then you do this, and you do this, and then the God has to answer. So Balaam, when he says to, to Balak, stand by this offering. I don't know if you saw that, but Balaam is complicit with this. Balak says, well, I'm going to go do these offerings because I think that's going to make your God have to do what I want. And the next day, Balaam's like, well, the offering thing, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that. And so they, they do that, and Balaam says to him, you stand here next to the offering while I go and see if God will meet with me. The idea is that Balak standing next to the offering is kind of like, he, you need to know who gets the credit for this, who you're obligated to, right? Much like any pagan would, would offer a, a, a sacrifice to an idol, Balak has offered this to the God of the universe. And Balaam says, stand there, so he knows who he has to listen to. Here's the point. Don't mistake spiritual actions for true worship. They may be, but often they aren't. And don't mistake our relationship with the Lord for deal-making, because God is God and we are not. He sees much more than we do. He makes decisions based on his righteousness and his his very faithful nature. We are subject to limited views. We are subject to the ups and downs of our experience, our personal preferences. We have bias. Like We have all kinds of things that skew us. And so what we do intentionally is we come to a God who is perfect, who sees perfectly, who does exactly what's right. And we say, God, we want you in charge. You have my life. Do whatever's right. That's what we do. That's what worship is. And then when God does something that we don't understand, we say, God, I'm not surprised that I don't understand. Now help me to walk the path you've given me. Help me to walk it in peace and in rest. And it comes from this confidence. And this is the thing that I think is missing in a lot of our lives sometimes by the the attacks that we face and the ways that we get all twisted up. There's a confidence that's supposed to be in us because what we recognize is this. Worship is not deal-making. Worship is responsive. Worship is always a response because God always acts first. 
and then we respond. God did not wait till you, the light went on in your head to decide to send his son to die for you. His son died for you long before you were even in existence. Because God initiates and we respond. This is the way the true and living God operates with his people. Worship for God's people is always responsive. We react to God's person, to God's power, to God's grace with wonder and gratitude and praise. You don't need to get anything more from God than he's already given you. What God has given you already reflects both his person and his promise to you. So when I go to God, I go to God to say, I remember who you are and I remember why your hands are the one in whom I want to be. So let's see what God does with this. Okay, now it's all set up, and the expectation clearly is that God is now going to have to say, fine, I didn't want to curse Israel, but I'm going to curse Israel. Right? And even, even Balaam, when he, when he talks to God, he's like, now God, we did all these offerings. Okay, so it's like the setup. We did all these offerings, see? Verse 5. Down to verse 10, it says this, The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. So they did all this offering. They did all this stuff. And then this is the response. The response essentially is God is going to do good to these people. Now, God did not have to answer Balaam, and, and some of the Hebrew there is really clear that God, that Balaam's like, I don't know if God's going to talk to me or not, and then God does talk to him. So we don't, the, the fact that God decided to talk to Balaam is surprising. Balaam is so far away from the truth, it's surprising. But God answers Balaam's cry, but he did it not for Balaam. I mean, he kind of did it for Balaam, but he did it for Israel and for us. This is a story for us. Because what it shows is that our normal human idea of how we pray and interact with God is something that needs to get stripped away again and again. And not always when we pray, sometimes it's when we answer. In other words, when I pray, I'm in full surrender. And then when God answers, I'm like, but that's not right. It sticks to us and it holds on to us. And we need to come back to surrendering to Him. In this moment, Balaam is a stand-in for God's people Israel. Because he has a special relationship with God, but will he step into that as a real relationship or will he continue to try to see it as a place to manipulate God's power for his own purposes? So he says to God, here I am and, and here's the offerings and God says, okay, I'm going to give you a word. And it says he put a word in Balaam's mouth, meaning God gave Balaam a direct revelation that he's supposed to go back to Balak and say. And the ideas in this revelation are really clear, which is simply this. God is not going to curse Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? And these are people who are set apart. These are people who have a different thing than any other nations. God has set them apart to himself. They, are, they belong to him. There's no way you're going to curse them. 
And a matter of fact, the, the vision ends or the, 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 the proclamation ends by Balaam saying, Israel's going to have it so good, I wish I could be like them. That's, how, that's the end of this prophecy. Now remember, they went to these mountains and they offered these sacrifices so that Balaam would curse Israel. And the end of, this, end of his curse is, they're going to have it so good, I wish I could die like them. This did not turn out the way that either of them thought or hoped it would. It's still the same message that God gave Balaam initially. No way. All that they did in the meantime to try to get on God's good side didn't do anything. They acted like God was just one of the gods of the land. Offer sacrifices and get him to, do, get him to come to your side. But believers, here's what I'm saying to us as we pray, as we look to God, as we follow him. God does not move to our side. We move to his. That's what prayer is supposed to do. That's what worship is supposed to do. God does not move to our side. We move to his. The question is, is, that's what, is that what is happening in your life? In the day in and day out, figuring out what you're doing, walking with God, figuring out how to follow the Lord. Are you moving to God's side or are you waiting for God to move to yours? Sometimes the fear that fills our lives is a reaction of our refusal to submit, to trust in the God of the universe that's given me every reason to trust Him, but I'm afraid instead. Sometimes the frustration that we feel in a circumstance or in what's happening is really God's confrontation of us, his invitation for us to let go of what we actually can't control and trust that his plan is good. But we struggle to surrender. Worship should move us to God's side. We should never mistake it for a way to get God to move to our side. And this, the, the final part of this thing, we'll pick this up next week, but it's these last two verses, Balak's reaction. So I want you to see Balak's reaction before we close. It says this, Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? We start to get a little bit more of a view of what's really happening here because Balak's response is one of surprise. What have you done to me? And it seems out of place. You're like, well, Balaam told him he had to say whatever God said. But it starts to give you the sense that Balak's understanding from what Balaam said was not, well, God's never going to curse them. His understanding was, well, we're going to try to get God to curse them. Whether it was verbal or nonverbal, there was something more to their communication. And Balak had this understanding that offering all these sacrifices was going to get God to curse Israel. So when Balaam comes back with this prophecy, Balak is like, what have you done to me? And I want to say this. Every time you put yourself on the opposing side to God, you will be disappointed. Sometimes you'll be shocked but you will always be disappointed because God is right. And when you put yourself in opposition to God, it's, sometimes it's because you think you need to gain something that God's not going to give you. But I'm telling you from experience, I'm telling you from walking this out with people, what you think you will gain, you're not going to gain. And what you will lose is stuff that you don't think you can lose. 
God's invitation for you to come and trust Him is not so that your life will be constrained and diminished and, and full of hardship and, and, and trial that, that is purposeless and pointless and just drains your life away for nothing. God's invitation is to bring life into your life. So all I'm saying this morning is let's check our hearts on this one. Have we been disappointed in God? Have we blamed God for things that we thought He messed up? Have we called him Lord, but tried to be Lord? I'm asking us to come back to worship again. Not that we haven't been there, but that we need to come back to worship. We need to come back to surrender. We need to come back again today and every day to submission. King of kings, Lord of lords. For each one of us, if you're outside of the faith, this is a day to come in and surrender to the one who will hold you and heal you, the one who will bring life to you. Not to, to hold back because you think this God is not trustworthy. He's trustworthy. The one who's not trustworthy is you. And believers, for those of us who know this, this is something, what I'm saying to us today is this. I don't think we're all out there just trying to make deals with God all the time. I'm just saying we need to practice submission. We need to practice surrender, and we need to practice it through worship. This is what we get to do, and this is what God invites us to, and I pray that we will walk into it every single day. Let's close our service with a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to do that right now. We come to surrender to you. The things that have been overwhelming us, the things that have been hurting us, the things that have been frustrating us, the things that... We don't understand the things that we're in chaos about. Father, right now we come and we, we admit we can't figure all this out. We can't do all this. And we do not want our relationship with you to be transactional. We don't want to come and try to get something from you to give something to you. So we, we want to come in trust. We want to come in faith because that breeds hope and life in our souls. So where we have missed it and where we have lost our grip on it, bring us back to it so that we can be fully your people resting in your hands. As we sang this morning, I will rest in the Father's hands and leave the rest in the Father's hands. Help us to live that out today and each day this week. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.